There we are. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Hi, everyone. How are you all today? I hope everyone On is doing well. On this beautiful, cool Monday. Oh, yeah. That's right. what I keep telling myself. No, it's not. And unfortunately, Scott still has the cough. The cough. Just the what cough. What the heck? I have the cough. I'm going to the doctor tomorrow, but I still have the cough. It's kind of crazy. So... Anyway, you know, I just... The makers of cold pills are getting rich on me right now. They are. They are. Unfortunately, it's not doing much. But yesterday, I told you when we were doing class online, somebody who was actually a pharmacist said that you needed these pearls. And then I went out to lunch with a friend today who first thing about talking about you, she asked me if you were taking the pearls. Which you and I had never heard of. She told me they work unbelievable and that she keeps them in her house all the time prescription or you know because yeah. because of how well they work that just at the start of something you just start taking these little pearls must be a, a really strong cough medicine inside this teeny tiny little thing I was so. reading what they do they sort of deaden the throat and and uh, s- swallowing and throat and all that stuff in there that yes so you need to numb it all. You need to you need to be doing that. And be careful about swallowing. That's it said. Well, Susan told me it's very very small, almost yeah. like the size of a teeny. I don't mean the pill. I mean swallowing other things. Oh well. Yeah. Anyway. I'll be careful. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll try to get those out of bonnet tomorrow. <laughs> anyway, we hope that y'all are having a wonderful day today. It's still so hot, and the whole forecast is still really really hot. It's just. So. What did they say? No relief in sight? Yes, but aren't we grateful for the air conditioning that I'm, I'm hoping everyone has right now and that it's working? Yeah. What a difference the it makes. The grid's held up. What a difference it makes. Um, Scott has often said to me that Dallas and mainly the whole South would have never grown like it did if it wasn't for the invention of, you know, air conditioning. Oh, like yeah. It's got to be true. has to be true. It would have just been so awful. I, I agree. True. I agree. So, anyway, we hope you're all having a wonderful day today, and we're ready to move forward okay. today in the gospel. Okay. And gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. We're in, the, we're in the week between Palm Sunday and the crucifixion. Yes. So we're kind of stepping through it day by day. Day by day. Do you feel you feel strong enough to open us with the prayer? I do. Will you throw in the prayer that you won't cough too much? Sure. Okay. Let's go. Gracious, gracious Lord. We come to you today. I'm grateful to be gathered this way to return to Mark's gospel. Um, we do pray that I don't that I don't cough too much during this this class today, and help me get over this. Um, there are a lot of joys and concerns we're gonna carry in our hearts, so we all lift them up to you. Um, for we know that indeed you do hear, you do care, you do respond. It's it's genuine. It's real, and, and we're grateful for that. Um, all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. And indeed, we're going to talk about prayer today. Good. We always need to talk about that. All right. Okay, my friends. So let's. I I, I want to. I'm going to start with some images and things just to kind of catch us up to where we are. All right, because I, I think it's important to start to step through these stories of Holy Week in such a way that you see the days unfolding. Um, It helps you have a more grounded sense of 
what Jesus is doing and saying. So, <coughs> let's see. All right. So, this is what we were last week. Palm Sunday. Jesus, the, the red arrow shows Jesus coming into the eastern gate to the acclamation of the crowds. As I said last week, the key thing to realize is that he is taking every single symbol of messiahship and focusing them on himself. So, there's no longer any question, no longer who do you think that I am, all those kind of, those are all in the past. It's very clear now that he is claiming to be messiah, which is a royal term. And it is a, it is a, political term in the sense that the Messiah is the Lord and in this world there can only be one and um, Caesar thinks it's him and Jesus is presenting himself as the king of the Jews hence Messiah hence as the Lord installed by God to rule over God's creation and so he rides in on the colt and he's got the cloaks and he's got the palms and it's all very exciting, and the crowds are responding, and so forth, and pretty much that's what happens on Mon on Sunday. And then Jesus goes back out um, to the Burbs, to Bethany, on the eastern side of the uh, Mount of Olives. He seems to be staying with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus there. Um, some of the days that tell us that tell you specifically where he goes. But it's a safe bet, I think, that he goes just goes back there. We talked about that last week. Here is the full panorama of Jerusalem and Jesus' day. Now, this is the model in Jerusalem now. It's quite large. You can see the people in front. They give you a sense of how big this thing is. And you can see the Temple Mount, the Temple proper. Um, the Temple is the structure in the center surrounded by all those temple courts and around them are these um, covered areas called porticos and Solomon's portico is on your left hand as you're looking at your screen Solomon's portico is on the left now these temp temple courts and porticos are where Jesus will spend most of the week going back to Bethany at night, coming back to Jerusalem today. And a lot of it happens on Tuesday. We're not there yet, but a lot of it happens on Tuesday. Okay? So, he rides in on Monday, right? He curses the fig tree. We talked about that. He goes into the temple, and he interrupts the temple process, the, the money changers and the doves. We talked about that, the fact that people would come and use their money to buy an animal to sacrifice for them um, rather than having to travel all the way to Jerusalem with the animal. And how long does Jesus interrupt this process? I don't know, not long, 20, 30 minutes maybe, but it's very symbolic. And he, as we saw in closing last week, he, he invoked the words of Jeremiah right about 600 years before god and it's these are the words of god's condemnation on the temple 
And you would think it's an odd thing that God would condemn the temple, but the temple and the priests were to be the bright path for Israel in their life with God, but instead the temple has become corrupt and no longer at all a reflection um, and a light for God's way. So, now I brought a few more images. This is another image of the Temple Mount taken from the, well, from the west, looking back. So you get a little bit large, a little bit better picture of the uh, Solomon's porticos there. Now they're on your right-hand side because we've switched 180 degrees. But it's very expansive, very large, like 22, 23 football fields can fit inside this space. Patty and I have been up there. It's just, it's enormous. It's enormous, just huge. And here's a picture of Solomon's portico. They, obviously the pillars are there to hold the roof up because the sun is so strong there that everybody would, and a lot of the time would want to be in the shade. And here's a painting by James Tussauds of Jesus teaching in the temple courts. Um, he's just sitting on the ground there and some disciples are gathered around him and you can probably, the standing figures are meant to represent the Pharisees and scribes or looking a little askance at him and over the distance there's probably some others looking askance at him because as each day goes by, he, the, the tension gets wound tighter and tighter. So go to Mark 11. This is where we stopped last week. Mark 11, verse 18. And verse 17 invokes the words of judgment um, from Jeremiah, from God through Jeremiah. Um, 600 years before, he resurrects those words here. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves, a den of robbers. And then in verse 18, not surprisingly, we learn that the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus threatened the authority and legitimacy of the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, all of the ruling elites in Jerusalem. And like all ruling elites anywhere, there's a whole lot more of just ordinary people. So they always have to be cognizant of the ordinary people. And, and here, the, the, these elites are, are fearing Jesus. They want him gone. And they're probably right that the only way to do this is to kill him. But that's going to present its own problems, okay? Verse 19, so this is still on Monday. Okay, Scott, I have to tell you, you have disappeared. I've disappeared? Yes. Where have I gone? I'm looking at me on over here. Well, let me see. Oh, Facebook's having problems then. Okay. Maybe you're here. No. I see you. So they they 
can see you. So that's okay. just keep Because everything, everything looks in order here. Okay. okay. Mine says this live video has ended. <laughs> well, so. I don't know. Linda Rivera says, okay, on my end. Good, good, Linda Waldo good. says, I see you on Facebook. I'll, Hi, everybody. I'll try a couple different I things. I wish I could see all you guys. All right. So, verse 19. This is the end of Monday. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. So they're going to go back. Remember, Jerusalem, this is Passover week, so Jerusalem is really crowded, so they can't all stay inside the city walls. So they're going to go back out of the city, probably to Bethany, probably to hang out and have dinner and spend the night with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. The very crowded time. Um, and they're going to, that's what they're going to do for Monday. So, verse 20, in the morning. Now, this is, this is going to be Tuesday morning. In the morning, as they, Jesus and the disciples, went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. This is the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. Right? We, we saw the parallels in that to the temple, um, acknowledging that it is a pretty... What is it? A pretty, a pretty mysterious little moment, actually, with Jesus. But the, 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 there is a line from the fig tree to the temple, where the fig tree is a symbol of the temple. And Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And so this is Jesus' answer. This is what he says to Peter. There are pieces of this that we are anxious to rip out of context. So we're going to put this in context. What's the fig tree about? Jesus' condemnation of the temple. What is the, what's invoking the words of Jeremiah about? Jesus' condemnation of the temple. What's the confrontations this week going to be about? His condemnation of the temple and the priests, the Pharisees and the scribes. <coughs> <coughs> so all of that is the context for this. So Jesus says to them, have faith in God. Have faith, trust God in this. Because Jesus is turning the world upside down. I mean, the temple is the ritual cultic center of the Jewish religion. It is the beating heart of the Jewish religion. It's where the people would go to make atonement for their sins. It's the place where the high priest on behalf of all of the people would utter God's name on Yom Kippur. It is, it is the place that everybody wanted to come. And now Jesus is, we are, you know, in our vernacular, we'd say, well, he's rocking their world. Well, this is a lot more than rocking their world. Jesus is blowing up their world. And when that happens, a person needs to know where to stand. What is firm ground as things are changing? And, and you're wondering, well, what did it mean that Jesus invoked the words of Jeremiah? Really? I mean, they know intellectually that after that few decades after Jeremiah used those words, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. 
But these aren't really intellectual questions. These are emotional questions. These get to the very heart of what it means to be God's people. They've lived their whole lives with answers, certain answers to these questions. And Jesus has come saying, you've got to take those answers and you've got to put them all to the side because I'm bringing you something new. And so he says, have faith in God, trust God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, to this mountain, notice he doesn't say to a mountain, to any mountain, to pick your choice mountain. He says to this mountain. Well, what could that be? Because the this in the Greek and in the English makes it very specific. It's a specific word. It's a, this specific mountain. What mountain is this? Well, it's Mount Moriah. It's the mountain on which the temple is built. If I truly tell you, if anyone says of this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. And Jesus has basically just said the mountain is going to be tossed, in metaphorical terms, into the sea. Trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus. Let, as the disciples' heads are spinning and their hearts are going here, hither, and yon, He's telling them that they need to trust him. And it may be, he might be, quote, rocking their world or whatever we want, however we want to put it, but they've got to be bold and they've got to trust in Jesus. And if, if they do that, then what they say will happen will be done for them. Um, thought just popped into my brain. I guess it's a good connection to this. I don't know. But my brain just popped out for me the Lord's Prayer. Praying for what? Praying that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is about the marriage of heaven and earth. And that's what Jesus is accomplishing here. And that is the marriage of heaven and earth means the world necessarily has to be turned upside down because there's lots of, of wrong and greed and envy and the rest that make up this world. It's, it, it's tied to Mary's song that she sings to Elizabeth about the world turned upside down. Gavin Rowe, who's a young theologian at Duke, wrote a book on the Gospel of, of maybe Acts. I think he actually wrote on Acts, I think. Um, titled it The World Upside Down. Because that, that's what's happening. And Jesus is attempting to instill in them confidence that yes, this is going to be. Therefore I tell you, he says, verse 24, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. 
Now this really, this verse taken alone can cause Christians lots of questions because it seems to say, well, just ask Jesus, ask God anything you want and, you know, and it's going to happen. Is that anybody's experience? Do we not all struggle with unanswered prayer? Well, Susan uh, just posted, Susan Faulkner, it's hard to explain that your prayer may not be answered in the manner you requested, but the perfect prayer is God's will be done. See? So what does that tie to? What Susan just wrote up there, if you go and look at your comments. that That's the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Yes. Jesus doesn't really, I mean, if you look at the specific thing Jesus prays for in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is another way forward, does he get that? No, he doesn't get that. Of course he wants it. There are a lot of things we might want in life, but Susan's right. It is, it is about God's will. Now this will, I was just asked some, I was asked about this again today by somebody. <coughs> <coughs> if you think that God's will, G-W, God's will, is some sort of specific will for your life about who you're going to marry, what job you're going to take, what vacation you're going to take this year, all these specific things that make up your life, you're going to have be terribly frustrated. You will never know. You can't possibly know whether you are living within God's will if that's, how, if that's what you understand God's will to be. How would you? You know, I have two two job offers, comparable job offers from, you know, good companies. They're all, you know, law-abiding, filled with good people. And I'm supposed to be able to discern that there's one of these jobs God's want me, God wants me to take and not the other one? Really? I, I think that just is an prescription for a lot of anxiety and it, begins with a fundamental mistake. God doesn't care which of those two jobs I take. What God cares about is how I live my life within those jobs. Do I look after the interests of others ahead of my own? Do I set aside my selfish ambition? Philippians 2. Am I gracious and kind and compassionate and show the fruit of the Spirit to everyone I meet every day? Do I genuinely strive to love God and love others every day and in every way, on the job, off the job? That's what God's will is. It's God's moral will for our lives. And you can, you can, maybe with the help of other Christians, but you can assess, I guess, how am I really loving God and loving others every day? Or am I still the same old selfish jerk I always was? You, I think we can actually do that. So, so th this prayer, aligning ourselves with God's will, is aligning ourselves with God's moral will, understanding how our lives should work in terms of our relationship with God and with others and the things that we use our time and our resources and our talents and our gifts for. That we can do. 
and I think that the 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 better as we grow in Christian maturity, we should find that the prayers that we pray are more and more closely aligned with God's moral will. And that's what, see, that's what Jesus does in the garden. And what is God's moral will for Jesus in the garden? That Jesus remain faithful, utterly faithful to the vocation that God gave him. So, so don't turn, you know, 20, verse 24 could be used to manipulate all, you can imagine you can manipulate God or other people. That, that is not it. It can't be it. On the other hand, I guess a verse like this can make people throw their hands up in frustration and say, ah, this is all a bunch of hoo If you don't think prayer is genuine, if you don't think that God is actually listening to you and ready to act and willing to act on your behalf, if you don't actually believe that yourself, then why should God listen and act on your behalf? Think about that. Right? Prayer Prayer lies at the heart of a relationship with God. This 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 two-way thing. It just has to be. It has to be. So verse 25. Now here's notice this is I guess I'm into two sides of one coin lately or something. Look at so we've talked about prayer. Now look what Jesus puts exactly with it. Verse 25. And when you stand praying. If you hold anything against anyone, that's broad, isn't it? Anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Does God expect us to be a praying and forgiving people. Yes. Yes. Look at the Lord's Prayer again. Prayer for, for forgiveness. I've used this, I don't know even where I got this, many years ago. Forgiveness is like breathing. We're, we're ready to breathe in our own forgiveness but it must be breathed out. It's like air. You can't just hold it. If you hold it, it becomes dark and corrupt. You have to breathe it in and breathe it out. Breathe it in and breathe it out. For a very short period of my life, a long time ago, long before Patty, I went to a gym on a regular basis in a basement. And I can remember my you sort of weight training guy trying to get me to practice good breathing habits of being very not only good at breathing in which I guess I had mastered 
but actually good at breathing out. And a good regular rhythm of breathing, because that was, he said, you, if you don't do that, you're never going to, you're never going to get anywhere with this. Well, okay, forgiveness and prayer go, they are, here we go. It's like, yesterday I talked a lot about trust and obey. It's like trust and obey. Here we go. Pray and forgive. Now, you know, my final comment on this paragraph is to just be careful because people load this paragraph with things that just don't belong there. It's not some blank check promised by God that, you know, oh by gosh, if you're a good enough Christian and you pray, you'll get whatever you want. Because that's just, that's just, that's just a lie. And so often what we want is in our own interest, but maybe not in anybody else's. It's it just as manipulative and cheap. So, so don't let that happen with this paragraph. Pray, come to God, it's true. God wants to hear you. God wants to help you. Um, and that process is grounded in forgiveness right it's just so is it a fascinating that Jesus put these two things right there together he's talking about prayer boom I better talk about forgiveness too and it's not just sort of forgiving halfway forgiving a few people if you hold anything against anyone who among us hasn't in our lives held a lot against many. I guess if I've gotten older, I've, I've really stri tried not to hold things against people, but wow, it can be pretty hard. So, any thoughts or questions from anybody about that? No, hon. No, no. Okay. Well, so... It's Tuesday, verse 27. They arrive now, again in Jerusalem. It's, and while, it's Tuesday in Jerusalem. <laughs> it's Tuesday in Jerusalem. <laughs> not, not Monday in Dallas. Okay, so Susan just also put um, a little comment here. I believe God wants you to ask and keep praying, for you will always receive the love from him, and it keeps us close to him. Yep. There you go, Susan. It's yes. true. See, it's a because it's a it's a relation. If if you if you cut yourself off from God by never praying, then you've cut yourself off from the lifeblood of of this relationship of love. So, yes. very true, Susan. Yeah. Okay, so they arrived again in Jerusalem. It's Tuesday, as Fatty pointed out. And while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. And now they challenge him directly. And they say, and I, I imagine this is in a stern voice, by what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Right? Authority is kind of a big word. It's an important word. Um, 
Who gave Moses authority for the Ten Commandments? God did. God did. Right? So authority matters. So, all right. Verse 29. Jesus replied, well, I'm going to ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Okay? So, verse 30. Sorry, I, my iPad is flying all over the place here. I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. Gosh, and I can just picture this happening in those temple courts. Jesus is there. They're challenging them. He's looking right in their eyes. They've asked him this challenging question. <coughs> and he says, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. And basically, um, if, <laughs> if you can answer it, then I'll answer your question. So, verse 31, the, the Pharisees, they go away. They're going to huddle. <coughs> they discuss it among themselves and said, Oh boy, if we say from heaven, like this is John the Baptist, who, who gave John the Baptist the authority to go out to the Jordan River and take people and plunge them in the river and call them to this repentance and all the rest of it? And they say, if we say from heaven, Jesus is going to ask, well, why didn't you believe him? Because what happened to John? He was beheaded. He was beheaded. Right? Go back and read the opening chapter of John. Look at what he has to say to the priests and the rest of them back there. So then they're in the huddle. Okay, if we say it's from heaven, ooh, that's not going to work because Jesus will just say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, Mark explains, they feared the people for everyone held that John was really a prophet. So Jesus has caught them on the head of a what? Spear or something, I guess. They can't come down on either side. Both sides are ruinous. On the one hand, they can't say it's from heaven because they beheaded the guy. On the other hand, they can't say the human origin or the crowds are going to be even more upset with them. So, lamely, they answered Jesus, Duh, we don't know. And Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now, if I were them, the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the priests, and all the other, you know, big dogs that are there. At this point, I would say to myself, look, I don't know what's going on with this guy, but he's a very clever dude. And I do not want to get trapped into another one of these kind of things where we challenge him. 
he asks us a question, we end up having to tell him some stupid, lame thing like, well, we don't know. And then he doesn't even answer our question. I would just think this would instill in them enough common sense to just shut up. But, does it? No. No. It does not. Why? Because they're just so smart. You know, the problem with smart people is sometimes they just get all caught up with their smartness. Oh, I did get a notice here now. Huh. All right. <coughs> well, I think you, I'm going to drop off your screen in a minute here, Patty. You've, you're frozen on mine, but I think other people can still hear you. Okay, so I think we might have had a burp there, but I think that was it. It was I got a message from Facebook saying that there was there was some internet connection. I don't think you're back up again. Yeah, you know it's funny. I remember talking to a tech at length one time from um, Spectrum. He did their internet service. He said, you know, yeah, we have problems in cold weather, but he said, <coughs> boy, hot weather. It's tough, tough on on these systems. So um, we're back together now, Whoopi. Okay, so you missed my little speech, I think, <coughs> about how the Pharisees should be wise enough to not challenge Jesus since he keeps, you know, kicking them. Not, he doesn't really kick them. I use violent language. He he puts them in his puts them in their place. How's that? Um, and but they persist. They persist. They try to trick him. They. He just answers in a way back that makes them. Right. Leaves them speechless. He thinks they think they're clever. Yes. And he shows them how much cleverer he is, I guess. And so he's not not going to answer their question. I'm thinking, you know, right away of uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. When they try to trick him about, you know, should they have to pay taxes or, you know, whatever. And he just answers in a way that leaves them speechless. Exactly. Which, you know when that happens, Patty? What? That particular encounter? What is that? Tuesday. Tuesday. It lies just ahead. Okay. I think it's after lunch. Okay. It's after Yeah. Uh, righty. Yeah. I guess it's in a couple of the Gospels, actually. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, he he speaks um, straightforward, but in a way, it's, it is still mysterious. Yes, and he's just a very, no answer that they very, very smart just man. So, smart, yes. so I just love how they're trapped in a thing. Well, we don't know. All right, so chapter 12. All right, chapter 12. Here we go. Here we go. The parable of the tenants. Now, this is a long parable. Um, it's a famous parable. It is, some parables are hard to figure out. This one is not hard to figure out. It's very challenging, very confrontational. Um, Jesus is not pulling back at all um, in his condemnation. And you will see how that plays out in this very, very famous parable that 
that says so much about what is happening in this Holy Week here, on this Tuesday and before and after, okay? Yes. So, chapter 12, verse 1. And my, my voice is holding up, isn't it, Patty? You've done very, very well. Yeah. Very, very well. Okay, so then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Parables, of course, they're stories. Stories with a point. They're not really, they're not fables. They're, 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 they're parables with a point, um, maybe more than one point. This, as I said, this one's very straightforward. He says, a man planted a vineyard. Now, if you are... A second temple Jew, which means the Jew of Jesus' day, day, who worships at the second temple. This is the temple built after the first temple built by Solomon was destroyed and rebuilt. So they were worshiping at the second temple. So these are second temple Jews. Um, You would already be clued in to where this might be going because in the Old Testament scriptures God has vineyards and those vineyards are God's people okay so a man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and he built a watchtower. All these are all the things you would do to have a good good vineyard. Because you need a wall to protect it from animals and intruders and stuff. And you'd need a wine press to deal with the grapes. You'd want a watchtower so somebody can keep an eye on things. Then he, the vineyard, the vineyard owner, rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Well, at harvest time. The vineyard owner, he sent a vineyard, <laughs> vineyard, sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Well, sure, the rent, basically, right? Yes. So he's turned this beautiful vineyard over to some tenants who have been working it, and now the owner is there to collect what he is due. So he sends a servant to do that. Verse 3, but they seized him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Then he, the owner, sent another vineyard to them. They struck this man on the head, treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. These are one bunch of ungrateful tenants who are abusing the owner of the vineyard and all of his servants, beating some, killing others, right? So, verse 6. So, the vineyard owner had one person left to send, a son whom he loved. And he sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. Now, right there, you know what we're talking about, don't don't you? So God is the vineyard owner. The tenants are whom? The tenants are the elites. 